0: Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's guests are Michelle Kuo, Editor-in-Chief of Artforum, and Kat Yalik, a partner of YC. Michelle came in to chat with us about art and technology, and in particular, a group called Experiments in Art and Technology. As always, if you want to read the transcript or watch the video, those are both at blog.ycombinator.com. All right, here we go.
1: So I'll just start by saying Experiments in Art and Technology was a group that was founded in 1966 by the artist Robert Rauschenberg, uh, by an engineer named Billy Kluver, who was a research scientist at Bell Labs. Uh, at that time, literally the heyday, or basically it was the heyday of Bell Labs, which was the ground zero for sort of everything as we know it none of what we're doing right now would be possible without the um, invention of the transistor for example. Um, all of these breakthrough inventions happened at Bell Labs and it was really the center of the telecommunications revolution. So this engineer at Bell gets together with these artists, some of whom are really you know prominent at the time and they are they've, there have been they' they've sort of met each other through some just really almost chance social circles, but also through um some art world uh, friends in common. And you know, Jasper Johns needed a neon, wanted a neon light in the shape of a letter, the letter R, uh, for one of his paintings. And he didn't want a cord. Uh, running from the painting to an electrical socket. So somehow we got hooked up with Kluver, this engineer from Bell, and said, can you do this? Well, it turns out it was kind of a complicated problem at the time. How do you make a battery-powered neon light that's small enough to fit behind a painting etc 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 well he did it so they had these various uh, collaborations but then Rauschenberg and Kluver the artists and the engineers thought why can't this why can't we bring this to everyone why can't every artist who's curious about you know making something float have access to an engineer who works on pneumatic technology so um, how could you uh, create these collaborations and then, How could you even scale them or grow them so that uh, this becomes a mass sort of phenomenon? So they set about trying to um, basically start to get the word out, to get artists and engineers together. Uh, The first real project they did um, that they undertook was uh, probably... You know, one of the largest endeavors at the time, it involved uh, over 40 engineers and artists, and uh, it was this performance series that took place in New York in um, at the Armory, which was a huge cavernous space. And basically, to get to make the performance, what became the performance pieces, uh, they paired artists, choreographers, musicians, composers, um, with engineers, most of them from Bell, just because that's... What was that process of pairing them like? Well, it was very tumultuous. So they had meetings. And again, it was very ad hoc. In other words, it was it was really a word of mouth thing. So um, Kluver would bring in friends from Bell, Rauschenberg, and Robert Whitman and other artists would bring in friends from their circle. Uh, this happened to include John Cage, uh, David Tudor, Yvonne Rainer, uh, really people that would become extremely well-known afterward, um, but were already prominent at the time. So they had freewheeling meetings. They actually held them at a high school in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, which was near (laughs) the Cleaver's house. Um, They would go up. There were uh, people who uh, lived sort of more upstate, so they would go there. And they were just um, really trying to literally brainstorm, to bounce ideas off one another. And, you know, of course the artists – wanted things like, uh, you know, I want a missile that floats. I want, um, you know, a a light bulb that will explode. I want walkie-talkies. I want remote control. Um, I want sound that will respond to the uh, viewer as they're walking through space in real time. And like any tech person knows, non-tech people think technology can do everything all at once already. So they were really (laughs) just pie in the sky. And I think the engineers were really uh, shocked, but also really enthusiastic because they hadn't had experiences like that um, in large measure before. So this really created a lot of excitement. It created a lot of uh, tension. (laughs) There were a lot of fights, a lot of conflict as well. Um, Just a lot of pressure because in the end, They, uh, I think, they signed up for creating, you know, a a very, let's say, ambitious set of performances on a large scale in New York. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, very little was tested or tried out. Um, And uh, there were long delays, delays. uh, nearly ten thousand visitors over the course of these uh, essentially twenty nights, yeah,
0: so like just so I understand the time frame yeah they they decide like there's this one project with a neon behind the painting with a battery. they're like, okay, this is cool. We should have more of this. They then like book the armory like nine months in well, advance I'm, and like fast
1: forwarding, but okay. basically they were they had proposed they got together let's say maybe ten of them, okay. Um, but really spearheaded by Rauschenberg and Kluver. And then it kind of built a bit. Um, and again, this is just this really almost contingent aspect to it. Kluver is Swedish. There's a Swedish performance festival in Stockholm. And they thought, well, let's apply to do something for that. Uh, that fell through. Mm. They, they, EAT claimed later that it was because uh, the performance festival didn't want to give... They didn't like the idea that the artists would give so much agency to the engineers and that they would kind of be this freewheeling thing. Regardless, that fell through. So then they just thought, okay, how can we produce these performances that we'd already started brainstorming about and everyone's really excited about? Um, And, you know, again, Rauschenberg and some of these other artists were quite prominent at the time. So, uh, you know, the Armory was suggested as a venue because they wanted – they wanted to test out literally physical scale. And in the armory, there are echo times of up to five seconds. So people interested in sound, in remote control, mm. um, in video, or basically in projection, um, were interested at, in this very large physical scale mm. already. So they they booked it, but again, I I guess part of it is that some of these artists were already quite prominent. And so on opening night for this performance series, you have Senator Jacob Javits and his, That's wife. Crazy. A, his wife is his wife was a prominent arts patron. You have the sort of who's who of the New York art world, but also of the avant garde, demi monde, and they're all there uh, en masse, and they're all really mad because they're waiting. It's, bra- <laughs> it's
0: like breaking, right? Yeah. Like it's not, <laughs> and
1: yeah. things aren't working. And so um, eventually, when things did start to work, you know, really extraordinary and interesting things happen. For example, in Rauschenberg's performance piece, uh, to make a long story short, one of the technologies they got and used was infrared. And at the time, infrared was a classified uh, military technology. They ended up getting infrared cameras from a Japanese supplier. And so at one part of the performance was turning all the lights off and in the dark then training these infrared cameras on uh, hundreds of performers that assembled on the floor of the armory. And so you got these very ghostly spectral images um, of these people for the audience at large. And again, you know, that was an extraordinary thing that happened. It's like as if today you would have an artist that had access to the Pentagon and was spending time, you know, toying around there. So that was really unprecedented Um, And from there, they got momentum even more. Um, They grew to a few hundred people. And then uh, anyone could really become a member. You just signed, you filled out a form, and you sent it in. And so at their peak, um, by around 1970, they had uh, nearly 5,000 members. What did it mean to be a member? So basically to be a member, uh, you could get access to this network. In other words, you could fill out what you're interested in, whether you're on whatever... Field you're in. Um, if you're an artist, you could say uh, I'm interested in new plastics um, and holograms and also cybernetics. And then if you are an engineer, you could say, well, this is my disciplinary expertise. I'm also really fascinated by you know kinetic sculpture, or I really like you know dropping how are acid. Discover, like, how are
0: people discovering this? Is like pre-internet. They're just like, okay, yeah, I'm into acid. I guess I know how that well, makes it to your town, but like,
1: <laughs> so they part of the whole thing was outreach. And they're very, uh, they made a concerted effort, obviously, not only to reach out to artists, but then to go to IEEE, which was the, you know, engineering society. They had a, Hans Hacke had a booth, was manning a booth there and (laughs) handing out flyers. So again, it's like, let's take this to the trade fair, to conferences. Um, They gave talks. Um, They did, you know, almost like not really publicity, but let's say tours of schools. The university was, of course, a whole other connector. Yeah. Um, and what you see as well is this uh, this network of what becomes or was a kind of academic-military-industrial complex. All these people are really in communication, and so EAT is basically saying, well, how can we get the word out?
0: So can you explain the actual uh Rauschenberg- like, piece at the armory? Because I thought that was particularly cool.
1: Yeah. So Rauschenberg had uh, decided to – he was very interested, again, in, first of all, remote control, This what he kind of thought of as action at a distance. You know, how can you make something else happen but not be physically tethered to it? Um, He's also interested in sound effects – Um, in sonic, uh, sort of in noise as well as, uh, you know, experiments basically in acoustics. And um, the other part of it is really uh, almost creating something, let's say, poetic out of people's movements. And he was also interested in games. Mm -hmm. And at the time, A number of artists had already or were already exploring the sort of structure of the game. Uh, And it was also uh, very much a conscious reference to game theory Mm -hmm. even. And so all of these layers are definitely, you know, there. Rauschenberg's piece basically set up in this huge cavernous expanse of the armory uh, a tennis match. (laughs) But it wasn't a regular tennis match. Uh, He set up a tennis court. He had the artist Frank Stella, who at the time was actually taking tennis lessons from a tennis (laughs) instructor named Mimi Kanarek. So the tennis instructor and Frank Stella are on the tennis court and they play a game of tennis. But it so happens that the rackets, the tennis rackets, are actually uh, hot wired. So each time you hit the ball, Uh, A resounding uh, amplified, a microphone would pick up an amplified sound that would resonate throughout the armory, and it uh, triggered a a huge bank of lights to be turned off. So with every volley, a successive uh, set of lights would be turned off. So by the end of the game, which has no winner or loser, the armory is in complete darkness. And then that's when these infrared cameras were turned on. Ah. And a mass of uh, sort of – they're not really performers. There were people that Rauschenberg sent out sort of vague instructions to, but they were just s- supposed to gather on the floor and do um, – maybe make a motion, like pull your ear or touch the person next to you. Just these sort of very vague uh, instructions. So that's what they were doing, assembled on the floor and the – image of them via infrared is then projected above on these huge screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the end of that um, they turned one spotlight on and the um, choreographer uh, Simone Forti came out and was being carried um, and was singing a sort of Italian folk song. So again, this is all, you know, it's it's not a regular narrative. It doesn't really make any sense, but it what it did was really push um, it investigated some questions around uh, performance, play, sound, uh, imaging technology, and also the idea that you could have—you um, could ha- a performance didn't have to be about a climactic spectacle. It was about s- some other kind of experience, and a kind of experience that um, the artist hoped you wouldn't have had before, mm. um, and that you know, really, that was the case. Of course, the first night, <laughs> the rackets didn't work. So they were, or the lights, this, the trigger for the lights didn't work. So they were actually manually turning off the lights. So <laughs> you know, it was sort of jerry-rigging or, you know, retroactively, you know, making the piece happen. Uh, later it did. But so, you know, again, it was, it was really a, a test and an experiment in every sense of the word. Mm. And at the time you know, people didn't really, uh, they didn't really sort of understand that that's what it was. So
0: I, I've been wondering this the whole time, right? Because it like so much of this technology was so new at the, like, to the extent that you had never even seen an infrared camera, right? How are people talking about this art and technology overlap? Because I, I know or I think I imagine how people talk about it now, but how are people talking about it at the time?
1: Well, you have a couple different attitudes. One is, um, you know, wonder and astonishment. This is amazing. Isn't this so uh, incredible and exciting? And uh, part of that is a very futurist strain of language, which is... um, You know, people basically trying to predict what's going to happen and having fun doing so, just like the artists were in a way as well. Um, But you have a lot of people uh, theorizing about the future of communication, the future of images, the future of human perception. And so there's a lot of literature around that from, you know, at every sort of uh, end of the spectrum. And then there are people who are extremely critical and wary. And at the time, you know, this is the height of the anti-Vietnam protests. This is a moment when, you know, well, 10 years or so after the military industrial complex is coined as a term, uh, it is a concept that begins to really take root and, particularly among the avant-garde, among the counterculture, among the very artists that, uh, and some of the engineers that are part of EAT. So they actually came under a lot of flack. I mean, there are articles actually written in Artforum as as well as elsewhere that essentially accused EAT of being complicit with, uh, you know, the military and taking that as far as you might even yeah. uh, go. So that was also part of why I think EAT had a very uh, conflicted reception at the time, and why maybe people haven't heard so much about it since then as well. And you get it really crystallizes both the utopian and the dystopian attitudes toward technology at the time and what art's role was to either explore that or, in fact, to critique and negate that.
0: Mm, okay. And so this led to uh, the Automation House, which like, I have yeah. so... What was it exact? Did you see that part of the video? No, I didn't. It's crazy. Okay. So what is it actually called?
1: Oh, Automation House. It's called Automation yes. House. Yeah, okay, yeah. I wrote that down yeah. correctly. Yeah. So this
0: is like their... Um, the collaboration between, I think I got this right, American Foundation on Automation and Employment. Yes. So basically this argument that they were having at the time, which is exactly like the same thing as today. Yes. Like the robots are going to take your job. Yes. And so it's uh, Kluver and he uh, and the people, and I forget the guy's name, who is the organizer of that? Oh, know.
1: Theodore Keel.
0: Theodore Keel. Yeah. They, the like, labor They create lawyer. this building together, right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Which is the like future of life house? Like what? Like, <laughs> I don't really understand what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Well,
1: basically, what uh, this is around in 1968, 1969. Um, EAT had been moving around. They had a loft. They had various places to sort of meet, and they they viewed the physical space as actually uh, an important part of what they were doing. Because as much as they were actually building what would become. A, a real network that was sprawled globally, um, they also wanted what they called a place to try things out, you know, a, a testing ground. And so they thought various physical spaces like a loft could be that place. Um, then uh, they got into, again, through Rauschenberg in large part, uh, talks with this group Uh, the American Foundation on Automation and Employment. And Theodore Keel was the guy who had started this, was the head of this organization, and he was a labor lawyer. He'd actually become well-known for mediating um, a massive, uh, I think it was a newspaper worker's strike in the early 60s. So suddenly, all of these concerns about collective action, about technology and, and labor, um, come to the fore and everyone is really worried that automation is robots will yeah. take our jobs uh, John F Kennedy had said you know automation is the greatest threat facing humanity today and so there was alarm <laughs> um, at the time it was they didn't even know about artificial intelligence yeah. so you know it was it was really um a widespread fear and so this group uh, that the labor lawyer was, sort of running, was actually trying to um, literally mediate these concerns. And they thought that they could find solutions to uh, not only accept but embrace technology and recognize that it was a reality, that it wasn't going away, but also then somehow change the sphere of labor so that labor, that people could still be employed. It's just that what they did would change. And again, this is obviously So it's a very positive utopian view of... of in the, some yeah. ways, yes. It's, yeah. it's almost very practical. Yeah. And they really wanted to try and solve this problem. Um, but uh, then it dovetailed very nicely with what EAT was trying to do, which was to say, you know, how can we pragmatically understand the force of technology um, in a way that, you know, I think people were really almost willfully blind to. In other words, you reject it and you don't even want to understand it. You, you can't really understand it, and therefore you're just you know going to condemn it. So they really wanted to bring people from different knowledge domains, uh, fields of expertise together, hmm. and try and solve some of these problems. So they decided to uh, build or renovate a townhouse in New York, um, to create a center for uh, job training, um, for workshops about automation <laughs> and technology, for art exhibitions, um, for EAT to have their kind of headquarters there as well, for classes. Mm-hmm. And they got two young architects uh, to essentially retrofit the building with closed-circuit television cameras, cameras video monitors um they had a video workstation there where one of the projects they did was actually convert a bunch of really experimental film pieces to video and then do the first cable broadcast of artists television uh programming uh pretty much of all time and this was in uh, 1970 71 okay where was it broadcast? It was broadcast on local access cable access in New York That's pretty on cool. two channels, and they published the schedule in the Village Voice <laughs> and like I think a few other newspapers. The TV Guide. But you'll see yeah. it's like Andy Warhol's, you know, dot dot dot. It's being screened at eight p.m. on Tuesday, you know. So that was really quite amazing, and so they were trying to to create some kind of studio slash laboratory where all these things could happen. Mm. Um, but it it started to uh, it. It again really highlighted how, um, despite all of the tensions and conflicts surrounding their relationships to technology, EAT really did have a social mission and was extremely political and wanted to, um, you know, it, cr- change both um, social and political aspects uh, of life. But it just let's say from a different vantage point than maybe other. Um, other artists did at the time
0: yeah because it seems very practical right like
1: it was yeah
0: it was yeah because what ended up happening with the house which is the my concern well then
1: it was basically became it eventually became a gallery
0: oh yeah great
1: (laughs) so you know again it's it was both practical and really impractical because you know many of their ideas again or many of their plans um sort of petered out and and the I would say one of the most uh, amazing and fantastic, but then also cataclysmic events for them was when EAT was commissioned to uh, construct and realize the Pepsi Pavilion (laughs) at the World's Fair in Osaka in 1970. And I think I talked about this. You did? yeah. Yeah. But basically... Uh, That was the biggest single collaborative project they took on, and it was truly global. I mean, they worked with Japanese artists, engineers, European artists, engineers, obviously American artists, engineers. They tested it in L.A., um, but they created a a 180-degree hemispherical mirror dome that was inflated, made out of inflated Mylar, essentially, which is the same technology that was being used uh, for the first telecommunication satellites. Mm-hmm. It's like they would launch a reflective balloon into space and you're literally bouncing waves. Oh, cool. <laughs> but instead, they used that technology, or essentially through much trial and error, jerry rigged it so that they could create an inflated mirror dome. And then when you walked inside, you there were all of these sound effects. Um, different textures, different projections and performances, Um, but the mirror dome itself created essentially uh, three-dimensional near-holographic inverted reflections. And you could capture this in photographs. So there are incredible photographs of this as well. But basically they took on this massive project, and uh, it, you know, by all rights was actually really... uh, created unprecedented experiences that were uh, literally giving you both real and virtual images as as they called them but pepsi to make a long story short when the pavilion opened to the public they basically thought this is too weird
0: oh no oh, the and there were people. also huge oh,
1: there were also huge budget cost overruns oh. <laughs> There was also a fog surrounding the whole – a fog sculpture surrounding the entire pavilion. I can't even get into all of these things. Uh, people thought the fog was a fire. So they sent <laughs> – the first day they sent, uh, you know, fire trucks screaming. <laughs> anyway, Pepsi kind of thought, well, actually, this is really weird. And, and so there was a, a breakdown. Actually, there was a, essentially a legal dispute. And at the end of the day, EAT sort of got kicked out of the pavilion. They were literally smuggling their tapes, like their uh, sort of, you know, eight-track tapes for programs out of the pavilion. And the end result is that uh, Pepsi replaced all of these experimental sort of uh, John Cage slash David Tudor composed soundtracks with... It's a small world. Oh.
0: <laughs> and 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 that was effectively enough to like burn everyone out. Where they're...
1: it was traumatic, I think, yeah. for everyone, and I think the whole thing was traumatic. I mean, they still went on for you know a number of years, but yeah. um, after, let's say, it, that really, I think, was was tough, and yet, you know. Again, I would say it was the, um, it really demonstrated how global they could be, actually, and Mm -hmm. how they could construct a global team that would create uh, something of a very ambitious scale. And um, it just, it it also just became an object lesson in all of the difficulties, of course, surrounding. (laughs)
0: Well, because what I had been wondering was that. The the first thing that got me into this was I was reading the um the conversations with Robert Irwin book. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Um, Yes, I love that book. And it's like just like one sentence. It talks about him hanging out with Richard Feynman. Do you know much about this? Like, I I want to watch that movie. I (laughs) want. And there's like so such little information online.
1: Um, I don't know if there's footage of it, but uh, there's a photo
0: of. Uh, yeah, Robert Irwin and Richard Sir, Sir I always mispronounce his name in like an anechoic chamber, yes, and they're like exactly. hanging out. Uh, but yeah, I don't know.
1: that's a famous sort of interaction where uh, Robert Irwin was experimenting with basically what shape his work. Where he's really interested in shutting out all sensation, and then he goes on to create works that that explore the Gonsfeld or this perceptual limit um, in the same way that an anechoic chamber does. But yeah, Richard Feynman was a member of EAT. So was Robert Irwin. um, So were a lot of physicists. You know, again, was part of this kind of crazy network of people. And what was great was that uh, there were a lot of, uh, not a lot, but there were definitely a number of analogous um, collaboration programs that were like EAT, Often modeled after that, mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. One was this program where Irwin was sort of meeting a lot of these people through. Um, it was uh, for an exhibition at LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art, and it was called Art and Technology. So it's all very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was basically a, for an exhibition. So they were very much inspired by EAT, but this exhibition. Uh, was sort of like the end point. So in other words, you would commission all these collaborations. They, they paired...
0: But it was this very corporate thing, right? Like there are all these companies like... Yes, yeah. but
1: EAT was also embroiled with all of these companies as well, like Lockheed Martin, uh, you know, basically the aerospace industry gotcha. in Southern California, uh, like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's where Irwin went. Um, so they, they did the same thing. They paired artists with engineers, but it was... Ultimately, to end up back in the museum. That's why I find really fascinating. And then, to me, the difference is that EAT, it was, it, it took the opposite trajectory. It tried to explode in scale and could not be confined by the museum. It did not fit into any of the traditional institutions. Did in the everything world. they build was it was it all site specific? Not necessarily. I mean, uh, you know, what part of what they wanted to do and what they did create was almost even. Uh, a set of equipment. So, for example, you could go check out the weird hybrid uh, uh, control panel that had been invented essentially or engineered for this other performance. Now it just exists there. You can go take it, and it's like a library. You can check it out and use it for something else. Um, and 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 yet, the other thing is that often what they created uh, does not conform to traditional uh, genres of sculpture or painting or drawings. And so a lot of what they made was either lost or some of it sitting in disrepair in like an engineer's garage somewhere or an artist's studio. Um, and so the paper trail, so to speak, well, they left a voluminous paper trail, but not a not a trail of, let's say, uh, traditional art objects. Huh. And that's, I think, also part of why it's been hard for people to wrap their heads around what this was or what they did. But
0: this is like a, an ongoing issue in the art world, right? Like maintaining all of this stuff. Yes. I mean, even I don't know the history of it nearly like you do, but the like all the Tang Li stuff, the the, yes. the the things that break themselves, yes. which are amazing. Yes. But they like the museum <laughs> kind of takes the fun out of it because there'll be like a red button that you can hit like once an hour, and then all like yeah. this thing will just dance and slowly fall apart. If
1: yeah, and there are many. It's funny. There There are a lot of exhibitions even nowadays where those things still don't, aren't working or like the technicians, the conservators have to come and, you know, sort of, they're always panicked. Um, But Tang Lee actually was really one of the first works that Kluver, the EAT engineer, they collaborated on a piece that was basically a kinetic sculpture that uh, destroyed itself in the Museum of Modern Art Sculpture Garden in 1960. And Um, of course, it didn't really... It sort of just short-circuited, so it was, again, supposed to be, I think, kind of spectacular, and in the end, it just kind of fizzled (laughs) out. (laughs) But that was one of uh, Kluver's first uh, collaborations with an artist. But yes, so the idea of... Uh, incorporating new technologies and new materials, or even unorthodox materials and unorthodox technologies, you know, that is a a really interesting problem for uh, the production of art, especially starting around the 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, and even more so now, of course, with, you know, God knows what, you know, an artist is using Bitcoin. I have no idea what they're going to do in the future. <laughs>
0: you wouldn't believe the but. questions you got on Twitter, by the way. Like people are sending in stuff. It's very, really? it's like it
1: was definitely a blockchain related question. Oh no, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to frantically Wikipedia that again. Um, but just to sort of finish that thought, I think what was really amazing specifically about um, some of what EAT made, and this is uh, present in, for example, a number, a lot of Rauschenbergs, own collaborative artworks from the time that he made with Kluver under the auspices of EAT, is that Rauschenberg said, look, I'm making this thing with a transistor radio right now. And, you know, they've done all these complex things to it to make, you know, sort of uh, the effects they want. At the time, in the 60s, transistor radio was not a mass technology. It had just come onto the market. It was a very new thing. Fast forward to uh, the 90s, this, it's, this piece, which is a sort of sculpture that has these radios embedded in it, is acquired by the Centre Pompidou in Paris. Well, the Centre Pompidou is a very funny building. Again, to make a long story short, uh, it's a very weird piece of architecture, but it acts like a Faraday cage. So it was blocking oh, all no. signal. <laughs> also, at the time that they had constructed the piece in the 60s, in the mid-60s, AM was like FM, and FM was like AM in terms of programming. So AM had more pop music, et cetera. FM had more sort of news, blah, blah, blah. Rauschenberg wanted to – I think at the time it was FM, and then so they wanted to switch it to AM as well. Anyway, let's just say that in the 90s they had to do this whole retrofitting um, and then successively update the radios and receivers in this piece over time to the point where now there are digital radios and receivers in the sculpture, in this in this metal sculpture from 1965. And Rauschenberg said, that's great. Do whatever you want to do. And in a way, he's taking this idea of the ready-made, which is this revolutionary 20th century idea, and he's saying the ready-made itself can be updated. It can sort of change and adapt to technological obsolescence. And mm. that is really... Uh, you know, fascinating and groundbreaking.
0: Well, it's particularly interesting when you like take the modern eye and bring it into these exhibits, where like things that um that are supposed to represent the future now look like this kitsch retro. Yes. Like there's the um, oh, I forget what it's called, but it's the At The Tate, that big tower of TVs. Yes, you Nam know? um,
1: June Pike. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: and and you look at it and you're like, oh, this is like cool, <laughs> like oh, in the, in the very 1984 esque. But I don't think yeah. it's intended or was intended that way
1: it wasn't but some so many artists again it's a sliding scale many artists at the time are actually interested in obsolete technologies and in exploring those at the same time there are other artists who are ex- uh, interested in the you know the newest latest thing and that's what they want a question i often ask artists that are alive still is You know, if you could do it all over again, would you use a different technology to achieve the effect that you wanted back then? And some say, yes. (laughs) Um, I even heard an artist say, yes, I actually want to take back my works that are in the museum and change them and put them back, which museums really don't want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No take backs. But again,
1: it it points up this crazy contradiction or this conundrum that people are facing. Some artists say, no, I wouldn't change a thing. I want it to reflect uh, that Medium that that sort of uh, form of the time, and that was that's something I want to preserve. Um, so it just depends on what you know you were trying to do, um, and and what questions you were trying to ask.
0: Okay. Do you do you have thoughts then? So Kat and I both went to Venice this year. I oh, yes. we had never yet. It's yeah. like <laughs> it's we're very really, weird. We are. I will mean, <laughs> be clear. Like it was the first one of those I've yes, ever been no, to. No, like,
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, okay. it, it only happens every two years. so yeah. Not, and so
0: you went, right? Because you wrote a review. Um,
1: yeah, we had a whole, yeah, series of pieces.
0: And there's a distinct lack of technology at this one, right?
1: That's an interesting question. I wouldn't, you know, that, again, I think points to what maybe has changed between, let's say, the mid-60s and now, which is that, of course, consumer technology has expanded to the extent that everyone has a computer in their pocket. So it's so ubiquitous that in a way, I wouldn't say that the the Biennale, for example, was devoid of technology. I think it was everywhere in a lot of different ways. But this exhibition in particular was focusing on, um, let's say, uh, an investigation of ideas about primitivism, about indigenous cultures, about nature, um, about spirituality. And those are definitely things that, um, you know, in a way that explains why you saw a lot of, uh, let's say, more traditional craft or form in the show. So you're totally right. It's just that I would say, A, we often don't notice it as much because Mm -hmm. it's not foregrounded as the raison d'etre of an artwork. It's just there. Um, And on the flip side, yes, it might... I would say that people are interested right now in exploring uh, the flip side of Mm -hmm. the acceleration of technology and its omnipresence. They're interested in also slowing things down in other kinds of perception or in even countering some of the kinds of um, media saturation. That
0: I we did, have. I did love sharpening a MacBook Air. Like that guy. Well, I, I like, literally, that guy's just amazing. Of that. He's yeah, like, Shimabuku.
1: yeah, Yeah, that's so what, great. what is
0: it? The snow monkeys remember <laughs> snow to Exactly. That guy's the best. I
1: just was thinking of that actually it was one of my favorite pieces at, or two pieces in the show. And yeah, exactly. So again, such a simple idea with the snow monkeys, but of course that's video. But then with the sharpening the MacBook Air, again, a very simple idea, but very uh, extremely uh, sharp. So in thinking uh, no pun about, intended. Yeah. In thinking about like the legacy of EAT, yeah. who do you think is doing some of the most interesting work in that, you know, kind of intersection of art and technology? Uh, you know, again, I would say what's, what's exciting in a sense is that so many artists, have so much more access to advanced technology simply because of the prolifer the proliferation of these advanced technologies in everyday life. Um, on the flip side, you know, I would say the 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 cloisters in which technology is actually being uh, sort of produced or created now are, are still, in many ways, as walled off mm-hmm. to you know the guy on the street as they were before. So some of the artists that I think are really either, A, pushing the boundaries of what art and technology can do together, but also of really looking at technologies or, or uh, making it a point to try and engage technologies that most ordinary people or artists wouldn't really have access to. One of them is Trevor Paglin, who, uh, for example, he... Um, Well, he's kind of a crazy guy. He uh, has a series of incredible photographs that are basically um, taken from remote sites and with very special uh, camera technology uh, of drone planes. Hmm. So there are these beautiful photographs, often of an incredibly brilliant night sky, and then there's a tiny speck and it's a drone. So Ah. he he has to do all of these things to get that sort of picture. and, And what he's doing in many different ways, uh, and in lots of other projects as well, is to try and render visible or sensible to us things that are absolutely not visible to us uh, normally, or even physically. Mm -hmm. So for example, he is really interested in um, all of these automated technologies that are post-vision, so to speak literally things that we cannot visualize because they don't take place in an yeah. optical yeah. realm. So how do you start to even talk about it or engage it or make someone somehow perceive, get some sense of what those processes are? Um, and he's really someone who I think has has done that. Um
0: yeah, I, I, I was just about to jump into some of these questions from Twitter, but... I can't, like, <laughs> yeah, well, this is w- definitely a new
1: experience for me, I will say. Yeah,
0: I mean, this is a... It's a new experience for us, too. Um, I should retype some of these questions, because it makes me sound like I can't read. Although I have, like, a fourth-grade le- reading level, probably. I do not. Okay, so uh, there... This um, Anna-Sofia Almagro, I also butcher everyone's name, um, she asked a question about blockchain. Are you... Uh, I yeah, I don't mean to be patronizing. Like, what's your level of <laughs> of
1: in the know? Um, we actually published a piece about okay. um, Bitcoin and the blockchain. It was oh. a media study. It was by a media studies um, person. And I will say I relied on a lot of help because my as I mentioned literally just by coincidence, my partner is a technologist and actually the rest of my family are all scientists and engineers oh, okay. as well, which is explains something, I guess. But um but I, we had to do a lot of research to make sure we were accurately characterizing the technology. And um, yeah, I learned a lot, obviously, when we worked on that piece. So, okay,
0: so you're on board. Then I have a question yes, for you. yeah. Um,
1: Although, you know, this is like a year and a half, two years ago. so But you can test my recall.
0: It's a, um, oh, well, Kat and I can jump in at any point. Uh, so is blockchain being used to track authenticity in art? So meaning digital art.
1: Wow. Not to my knowledge yet. Not to my knowledge yet. I don't think I've heard.
0: I've heard of one. Really? One, really? one project. Yeah, because you get the idea, right? Yeah. So it's tracking authenticity. Um, and that is – my interpretation is that it's incredibly difficult to create valuable digital art if it's, uh, A, like, you know, falling apart because, like, you know, your browser is no longer compatible. But also, you know, if you, like, Photoshop paint something – you can just duplicate it infinitely. Right. So you have the signature on this, the original. Um, okay. So maybe, maybe not.
1: I mean, it to me, I not to my knowledge yet, but I haven't really looked into it in this way. And I guess, again, um, what I would say is that it's an incredibly, well, it's a very intuitive, but it's also a perverse idea because I think a lot of artists right now who are exploring um something like the blockchain are interested in disrupting well that's a terrible word to use, so scratch that. Yeah. In in going against uh sort of orthodox valuation in the first place. So but yeah, I mean So they might not care as much about authenticity or of like this well, think the actively, original piece or yeah. they actively want to subvert authenticity. Yeah. And that's been something that again actually uh you could say almost the entire history of modern art is about challenging authenticity and authorship. Mm. And so we've been through in the art sort of realm many different iterations of people trying to test this in different ways. Um, And so, and technology is one of them, Mm -hmm. right? It's like saying that it's removing – to use a technological system is often to remove you as a human, single, individual, and your whatever imprimatur that may be on something. It's to replace that with a, a system that's determined in advance or might mm-hmm. use a chance operation. So these are all legacies in art that, again, are really informing, I think, people's attitudes towards even the newest technology.
0: Oh, okay. So – I'm sure
1: people are – you know, everyone's always interested in evaluation outside of the artists themselves. But so. Well, it's tricky, yeah. right? But it's all yeah. made
0: up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Uh, oh, okay. I don't know. if you're, Are you allowed to... Damien Hurst found objects, hot or not. Are you allowed to comment on this?
1: I think I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> all
0: right. Next question. Uh, is it still art if a machine creates it?
1: Yes. And for the reasons that I just enumerated, um, I think that... This becomes a philosophical question, but at the end of the day, uh, in most cases up to now, at our point in history, someone, a human still has to trigger that process, let's say go, even Mm -hmm. if then everything else is determined by an algorithm or by a, you know, program um, and uh, and yet artists were interested in challenging – they were interested in using machines precisely to challenge this traditional notion of authorship, which they associated with an outmoded um, model of, of being, basically, and to challenge systems really of um, not only of uh, capitalism, but also of um, – basically Western philosophy that is often privileging the author and it's the author as uh, a white male. So these are all things that get challenged at different periods in history. Um, and they, people are using machines to do that. The weird thing now is, and it, again, I would point to the work of someone like Trevor Paglin or another artist, Harun Faraki, um, where, As Pagan himself has kind of characterized, uh, these artists are confronting the both amazing and terrifying prospect of totally automated, uh, completely automated systems that don't need the human to set off that go button and that are, um, you know, (laughs) acting or using deep learning or using uh, all of these different processes that do not entail humans. And again, yeah, I think, you know, artists and art viewers will still be interested in someone who somehow finds a way to investigate that as art.
0: Well, so this is the. So we had Doug Eck for. I, have,
1: oh, yeah. Oh, you do? Oh,
0: pff, dude. I, you, no, you're I like way more into this than I. I yeah. don't
1: know him personally. I just, I know about him, but actually, again, this isn't even the video, but like my partner, because he's in music technology, uh, he again was like, oh, Doug Eck. And I was like, oh. So I, I was reading up about him as well, but yeah. yeah.
0: So he was on the podcast yes, before. which is great. Okay. Yeah. So he's awesome. And, um, his whole thing is right like this is just a tool and he often uh he cited a a Brian Eno quote which is basically saying like the uh the style is defined by the glitch of it you know like the electric guitar with Jimi Hendrix was the distortion uh you know like vinyl or tapes or whatever um and he had been talking about how when photography came out people were criticizing it's like this isn't art like this is just a reproduction yeah um do you think the same thing is just going to be happening with as like machine learning comes into art creation or 3d printing or basically my, my question is, is this a constant in the art world?
1: (laughs) Yes. I'll probably never live to see the day when someone doesn't say my kid could do that. So that is a question. And, but, but again, it's, you know, to me, the real question is, um, what, is what does it mean to introduce a glitch into something? What does it mean to explore um, the perfection of a mechanical or a computational system? What does it mean to um, try and uh, basically challenge uh, the legacy of virtuosic skill? In other words, the reason photography created a crisis for art was that it said... You know, if the if one of the stated aims of painting was to somehow reproduce the world in the most wonderful way possible, now you have a machine that just does it automatically. And so, what? How do you? How can you possibly um, try to understand a different way of creating that is uh, not mimetic, that is not about reproduction? And how can you try and understand? Um, a mode of construction that might even challenge or critique Mm. those systems of reproduction. And that's when you get into the 20th century and, um, you know, Steve Reich, you know, saying, I have the simplest pattern, but then in realization or in its realization, you get an incredibly uh, singular, you know, amazing sonic experience. But, you know, people are playing precisely with, Pulling the subject out completely, the author out completely, but then also, you know, the the realization that you can never quite fully do that. Yeah. So th- there's always these, you know, this tension between sort of total chance, total system, and total control.
0: Got you. Okay. So we just have a couple questions left. Um, this is a uh, yeah. This has been great. So cool. <laughs> Sorry,
1: this is getting. I mean, it's a big topic, but it's. I would say also the funny thing is regardless of the tool a lot of bad art has been made as well so you know look it's it that's what i mean about uh it's not just of course about the tool it's about what you do with the tool but also maybe you're creating a new tool in the first place and and that's when i think artists have really pushed the limits of what um Hmm. you know what Sensation is what perception is, right? What material is, will
0: always adapt, yeah, yeah,
1: and so when you're or even predict, I mean, right, they might be the forecasters in a way of Mm -hmm. what um comes to pass as well.
0: Seems like it, in some cases, yeah, in some cases, to their
1: great chagrin. What are the what are
0: oh, yeah, what uh happened in like automation house that didn't come to life or that did come to life, like that they called
1: that? (laughs) Well, so um, one project uh was they had a series of projects they called Projects Outside Art, which again gives you some idea of what they were trying to do. And one of the things that's uh, really uh, very funny uh, is a project that was called Children and Communication. So the artist Robert Whitman kind of spearheaded this project and, and... again part of this is about with these new tools of communication how can we explore democratizing communication and networks of communication so they had this idea to set up uh, multiple stations around the city where different school children of different socioeconomic brackets like in different places could go and have access to teletype Machines, basically primitive fax and telex machines. And so they could then, there are sessions just like go, and why don't you? Communicate with these other children,
0: <laughs> it's like AIM, with each other.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah I know instant messaging. <laughs> sort of people are. Uh, the, my like, joke is, and it went off the
0: rails similar. immediately. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this led to AI a, AOL chat and Match.com. It's yeah, like and this, chat is roulette. Snapchat, this is yeah exactly Google, proto. <laughs> um, you know, but anyway, so the children wrote to each other, and of course, there are all these like funny jokes. That then weirdly, it kind of went off the rails, and kids were using profanity to each other. Like it was just a very interesting. Funny sort of experiment, and even I would say, um, as a testament to how uh, architectural and formal experience was still really important to these artists and engineers, the uh, the sites in which the children were playing with these machines were specifically devised as these kind of low light mm-hmm. um, tents. That for whatever reason they thought this would be an interesting environment It's an intimate environment, I don't know. <laughs> but but it was really um, you know something where then they uh, explored telex communication with they set up telex stations for adults um, on the occasion of another project in uh, Ahmedabad, India, in Stockholm, in Tokyo, in New York, in LA, and they were having people ask questions about what they thought the future would be like. Mm. So again, it's this very, um, you know, uh, in a way, idealistic vision of how people might exchange information across a global network, but also um, with questions that were very much uh, geared toward, you know, fear of what the future might bring as well.
0: What Will you make a future prediction about, like, how these art and technology communities can work together? Because I, I agree with you that both of them seem kind of um, in, in the same way, like accessible and completely inaccessible if you're not like part of the club or whatever. Right. right. Um, what's your future prediction on their relationship?
1: Well, they're both highly specialized and, and that's part of why I think you see this isolation and, and that's precisely, those were precisely the terms that EAT was using back in the 60s as well. How can we, um, bring these fields together that are developing an isolation in a dangerous, potentially dangerous way. Um, but again, I think part of it is, um, on the one hand, uh, art actually has a track record of creating public institutions, or that there are public institutions that have been created for viewing and experiencing art. Um, theoretically, one wishes they were more, even more public or more accessible, but they're there. And I think the same thing, I would hope, might be created or really be augmented for technology, which is to say really creating um, a public institution or a public sphere for technological knowledge and experience in the same way that um, a museum is, in an ideal scenario, a civic institution that's really for um, an and audience of anyone who wants to go. In reality, of course, we know that's not always the case, but you know, that's the aim. And and I guess I would say that the effort to make a public institution has to exist because everyone thought the internet was going to be that, Mm -hmm. you know, democratizing uh, final utopia. And instead, we've seen the flip side of that, which is the development of ever specialized, ever atomized, ever more esoteric and inward looking um, conversations, or even I don't know if you'd call it a conversation, but just uh, nodes. So how do we start to really invert that and and instill a sense of what a public sphere could be Mm. for both art and technology? And only then, I think, would those, I think, domains really be able to talk to each other.
0: Hmm. You got to take down your paywall. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, then I then I wouldn't have a job, but, yeah. but I agree if someone would pay me, I would take down the paywall, pay us all to make this great content. I would definitely take down the I pay agree
0: with you. No, no it's, t-
1: you know, that's the conundrum of, yeah. of creating content today. Yeah. And I would say that um, it is, <laughs> you know, again, the conundrum of copyright, copyleft, all of these things, which is. Uh, I firmly believe that information wants to be free to yeah. quote another, you know, utopian guy. <laughs> yeah. But it right now it it's um the information there wouldn't be any information in many ways if uh if the people weren't there who could have a livelihood to totally. sort of yeah. create it. And and that's the tough sort of paradox of our situation now. Totally. But then yeah.
0: No. Yes, I get it. Um, My my only, uh, my last question. Do you have any more questions?
1: I might. I'll see what you.
0: Okay. Yeah. uh, Well, I always like to, you know, recommended reading. I gave that to you as like a pre-question, so I didn't want to waste it.
1: Uh, Well, one book that is, uh, I think, you know, a very great and general sort of argument about some of the historical shifts we've been talking about from the 1960s to the present um, is a book by Fred Turner called "From Counterculture to Cyberculture," and he really traces uh, the transformation of the, uh, the ideals of the counterculture, which were to you know fight the system, bring it down, into the system of uh, Silicon Valley and how those um, uh, aspirations and and uh, Even styles really got incorporated into, um, you know, the most successful sort of wing of capitalism today. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really uh, strong book for anyone who wants to understand some of these dynamics. Another book I'll say is more esoteric, but again, I think it's good to just plug this (laughs) because that's part of my own perverse desire to do this. But the book uh, by this art historian named Maria Goff, and it's called The Artist as Producer... And that's actually about Russian revolutionary art, and it's about a moment in time when uh, in one of the instances that it covers is what's called productivism, and it's when artists, as part of wanting to create a new society, which, you know, again, failed for all different kinds of reasons, but they wanted to and they successfully um, actually went into, infiltrated the factory, the laboratory. They basically became organizers. So they were, artists were devising new ways of organizing labor and Hmm. uh, sort of subverting the whole... um, conventional wisdom about Fordist, you know, assembly line production. And so they, it became a social experiment and a technological one and an organizational one. And the artists were literally driving that. So again, it's a, it's a weird, crazy moment in history, but I think it's also really applicable today. It's absolutely applicable. And I think it's, you know, um, part of what this is, is a history of things that, that people thought of but never came to pass. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in our culture, we're often taught if it wasn't successful, then you shouldn't pay attention to it. But actually, I think the opposite is true because then you'll never know what still might be possible in the future. And so you have to explore all of these basically paths not taken. And this was one of them, which I happened to find, you know, really, really fascinating. I would also put in a plug for reading, trying to read, um, you know, a for going to see art, mm. mm-hmm. which still exists IRL. And
0: well, that's why you're here. And, we should plug it. <laughs> well, no, seriously, plug the show.
1: Um, and uh, oh, sorry. Yes. Well, there are a number of really interesting shows on right now. There's a show at CCA Wattis here in San Francisco that's exploring art and technology. Um, even uh, well, there's a lot of shows you know uh, that are going up in the near future. One show at the Museum of Modern Art in New York was the Rauschenberg exhibition, and that covered some of this material. Um, I would also put in a a plea, or not a plea, but just I think it would be uh, exciting for people to try and read art criticism as well, writing about art now. And as I said, I think the best art criticism can really speak to multiple audiences and that people from really different backgrounds or people who aren't specialists can take something away from good writing about art. Uh, Someone else might take something else away from it. Um, But at its best, it can offer that. And... Where would you start? Well, with Art forums. Well, obviously, (laughs)
0: obviously I knew that was coming. I mean,
1: I strive to, you know, we strive to create the best art criticism. Um, Is
0: there like... Okay, so... Do you know who uh, Gay Talese is? Like yes. the guy who does all these profiles. Yeah. Um, is there like you know someone who could go into the past? Like just pick a writer. I'm like, oh man, this is like iconic art criticism. I think you can start
1: here. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I would say Clement Greenberg. He is. He was wrong on a lot about a lot of things, but a he's an amazing writer. And B, he, uh, reading that criticism will tell you uh, a lot about the entire edifice of what art is today, all the battles that were being fought, um, the kinds of art that were being made that basically are still the kind of, um, let's say, foundation against which artists are responding in some degree or trying to, you know, obviously push beyond still the other thing is he was often writing for journals, even newspapers, and um, it's it's very clear and, and very it's very much a polemic. It's very much an argument. And that was from a time when uh, the stakes seemed really high in a way that almost seems ridiculous or impossible today. Um, at the time, critics in the 50s and then in the 60s were battling it out, and as one critic put it, They were literally fighting for the soul of Western civilization. So (laughs) um, then you get a sense of what people uh, held, um, what they were holding art accountable for and and culture accountable for. And I think that's really important.
0: All right. Thanks for listening. So if you have some time, please leave us a rating and review. And if you want to watch the video or read the transcript, those are both at blog.ycombinator.com. See you next time.